0: This is Good Humans Podcast with me, Cooper Chapman, chatting to the world's best about the inspiring stories that got them to where they are today. What's up, all you good humans? I hope everyone's having a very nice week. Happy Thursday for those tuning in on the first day of this pod coming out. Big thanks to everyone who's been tuning in, as always. Very, very stoked to see the podcast continuing to grow. It's really nice to get messages on Instagram from everybody letting me know that the podcast guests are having a big impact on their lives. I'm so, so inspired by all of these guests. I learn something in just about every episode. and. Yeah, I'm really excited to continue to share these great episodes with you. As always, I'll give a little plug. If you could go over and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, it really helps us out to grow this pod and to get more people listening. Also, do have a little thing going now. If you leave a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your Instagram at handle at the bottom of it, each month I'm going to be pinning them up on my wall for motivation for me and yeah, for me to be able to look up to and have a bit of gratitude. I'm also going to pick one person each month to send a little good human prize pack to as my way of thanking you to get around the pod and to share your insights but, Yeah, because the feedback is great for me. On to today's guest episode – This guy is a really good friend of mine, somebody who I've been so, so inspired by being a professional surfer. I grew up in Narrabeen and this guy's also a professional surfer that came from Narrabeen and he's had a journey that's so, so unique with a great, great lot of success from a young age, six years on the World Championship Tour and then a stage in his life where it all kind of fell apart and it was really nice for him to be open, honest and super vulnerable sharing his story. So, Yeah, it's a great story. It's a lot of ups and downs with some awesome little stories from being on tour for such a long time with some very recognisable professional surfer names. So without me going into it any further, welcome to the podcast, Nathan Hedge.
1: How you going, mate? Awesome. Yeah, just got the opportunity to be here on the East Coast and stick the toe in the water for a little competitive season. It's pretty rad there's it's like a junior, not junior, it's like a regional series now so you can you know not have to travel too far and just surf up and down this beautiful east coast so yeah it's gorgeous to be here in boomerang beach yeah it's nice um
0: for anyone listening nathan and i are both down in boomerang beach for a surf comp right now (laughs) and yeah it's been fun getting to spend a bit of time together and i've been wanting to be we've been talking about doing this podcast for a little bit because your story is super inspiring to me you've been a mentor and a big motivator for my surf career but also just as someone Mm -hmm. i've looked up to because of the journey you've been on and the resilience you've gone through on that journey and i know the listeners are going to be super inspired so i guess for anyone out there listening how do you define nathan hedge who
1: are you and yeah what's nathan hedge all about well right now as i sit here today um you know i'm a a proud father you know i i feel awesome in my own skin i know who i am and being being a really good dad i think that's first and foremost that's that's what I love being right now, and you know I'm a I'm a son and a brother, and a you know a father to my daughter. But I just yeah I, I really see my role right now and my importance in being a father to my daughter Summer, and you know obviously my passion and my whole life dedication has been to surfing. And there's a bunch of offshoots, um, you know parts cup compartmentalized in my life that um you know enrich and sort of add add to my experiences but it's it's mostly revolves around the surf and the ocean um you know my days begin with checking the ocean and then how my day flows on for that is depends on how the surf is so that's (laughs) it's a pretty amazing you know life and it's um you know it started from very young and it's sort of it still continues today to be that way so it it kind of blows
0: my mind Yeah, and we're so lucky being surfers and your career is something that has been phenomenal to watch from the outside with so many ups and downs and so many high points and I guess so many low points, which we will talk about today. Yeah, I guess how I sort of start all the podcasts, we'll go back to the beginning. Where'd you grow up? What was family life like as a yeah. kid? I think it really sets the scene
1: for the journey that you kind of end up on. Yeah, absolutely. I was really fortunate. My dad was a builder, a really good builder. Well, I was born in Brisbane and then he had like a, I got two other siblings, Damon and Anita. And we had a young family. He moved to the coast, the Sunshine Coast. Got out of Brisbane and started building some units on the beachfront in on Sunshine Coast. My dad built 20 units on the beachfront. I remember growing up there being like four or five and surfing down the front, um, like on a bodyboard and just in the pool and sort of that aquatic beach lifestyle. And you could just sort of roam around and build cubby houses in the dunes. And so I remember that really vividly uh, growing up on the beachfront on the Sunshine Coast at Kings Beach. And then in 87... The recession hit um, my dad was a builder and then so a lot of the sales for this unit complex that he had built fell through and so it was kind of like hard times for dad and so um, dad's brother was living in Sydney and um, so he said, look, we come down this building here and so we packed up the Toyota Corolla, dad with the three kids, mum and dad and we bailed from sunny coast and drove to Sydney, big smoke and um, yeah, dad um, got us some rentals on the beachfront at DY just to land you know to just see how things would go and he was working in the city in the rocks and started doing like um was a foreman for like latents contractors and he built the clock tower in in the rocks there and was sort of yeah in the city a lot and building and stuff and so yeah that started that journey um you know for dad building in sydney and then there was like a bunch of years in the city and then he started building out on the northern beaches And uh, that's when we moved up to Narrabeen. There was lots of opportunity to build up there. And um, I had started my surfing days like at D.Y. Point and in the corner there, like Kitty's corner, a little left there. And we we had like our little um, Fibro shack right at the top of the steps at the southern end of the pool. It was just like classic, like little um, matchstick shutters that would go up, like paint chipping off the walls, like a classic beach house, you know, with a little like garage out the back. And um, so another – incredible way to grow up on the beachfront and then that was a rental as well so whatever happened I think developers came and wanted to knock it down and move so we moved and it was probably one of the best moves we could have done because I'd been up to Narrabeen a few times because the waves always seemed to be like a bit more hollow up there and some lefts and I got my first barrel ever at Narabeen. so um dad said that we're moving up to Narabeen. I was about 11 and yeah, then we moved back onto the beachfront down in Goodwin Street, Narrabeen, like next to the Marquises building there. It was, wouldn't be able to build there now because it's sort of with the council restrictions, you'd have to bring the property back, but it was literally right on the beachfront again. Oh, how that? Yeah, little three bedroom shack on the beachfront again. So like, I guess I tell the story that way because my dad, it would have been cheaper for him to move back like away from the beach a little bit, or there would have been cheaper options, but he always kept his family and us on the beachfront. So that really facilitated and gave the opportunities to have a life surrounded by the ocean and, you know, so I really, really value that and um, even though we're in Sydney, it was like we're on the northern beaches so it was, yeah, we just grew up with the, the sound of the waves constantly.
0: Yeah, and it's such an awesome thing. Right now we're staying at Boomerang Beach. Shout out to the Carey family for looking after us and letting us stay in their beautiful beach house. It's There's something special about listening to the ocean and hearing the ocean. It's so soothing but it's also for people like us who live and breathe surfing and like you said check the waves in the morning it kind of sets up your day and sets up the whole vibe and feeling that you take into the day. Narrabeen's is obviously a very important part of my life as well I grew up in North Narrabeen that's how we've had such a great friendship and connection from quite a young age you mentioned you got your first ever barrel at Narrabeen. Yeah. Can you remember it? Do you want to talk us through it because I know there's yeah. a lot of kid listeners who are young surfers in this yeah. um who listen to a good humans podcast and I think yeah. I think the first barrel story would be a good way to start your surf journey.
1: Yeah, it was this it wasn't right up the end at North Narrabeen. it was more sort of down um Emerald to Weatherall Street down down that end um and I just remember it was about 2 to 3 feet. And I just remember being Behind the curtain and, and really seeing the wave like in front of me in the in the curtain and I think that it just I just remember it being like in behind the curtain and then coming out and I do remember claiming it too so I think that's <laughs> where my claim started from real early I was about eleven I reckon twelve and uh yeah it was probably just just that feeling of being inside the wave I hadn't had that before mm. and actually come through I might have doggy doored out or been sort of covered up and then got smashed but. This time I actually came out clean and like was like still standing. I was just like, wow. No way. My dad's mates he used to work with um, were on the beach. I remember just climbing and putting my hands like, He's yeah, so sick. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh, I love yeah. that. I feel like most surfers have that first sort of experience
0: of getting bowed. It's such a unique time sort of standstill. And we hear so often in sport and just in general like getting in that flow state and getting in that really present state for one is really good for your mental health and is good to be extremely mindful and so present but I like to I've brought it up a few times I think on this podcast but I think that's what draws us to surfing so much the fact that no matter what you're feeling no matter what's going on on land you can still have those thoughts I think paddling whatnot but then once you stand up on a wave every single time you have to be completely present and it's like very rarely you think and maybe if you're getting a bit of coaching you'll try and think about something but I don't think I've ever stood up on a wave and thought about like my bank account or where I'm moving or what's going on with work do you have quite a similar feeling with surfing
1: yeah I I absolutely agree with you It, it it demands you to be super present and right where you are and I think that's the the meditation side of it, or being ultra present, or in the now, as, as as we as we hear it, you know, because um, yeah, it forces you to be right where you are, and if you're not, you get slapped and beat down, you know, um, if you're back or too far forward, you know, even in your surfing, like competitively, if you're looking too far ahead, you sort of you don't give credit to the section that you're at, and it might result in not as much spray or not as much power. So even having your mindset being a little bit further down the line can cause an effect. So. You know, surfing waves, if you're not right there in the moment, um, yeah, the ocean will kinda hand you some some beatings right there and then. So yeah. and you know, you're, you're constantly gotta be evolving and changing and adapting to the conditions. So <clears throat> you really do have to be switched on and, you know, um aware and you know, then in then we can talk about in between the waves when you're waiting for a set and just looking at the horizon and it's kinda like a empty the top of your head, flip it open, pour out and clear space for new it's mm. it's it's a real healing kind of the social aspect too you know when you're out there and it just it's just conducive to good chats out the back you know and it's a it's an equal playing field i think that's the most beautiful thing about it because no matter what level you're at when you're sitting out the back it's an open platform and you can chat to anybody of any ability and it's it's equal whether you're a ceo of the you know highest paid businessman or woman in australia to someone who's you know teaching kids how to surf to a bank teller whatever it might be it's it's all equal out there and i think that's the beautiful thing about it too
0: yeah it's such a Mm. free thing and i think that crosses over just that feeling we're talking about being present in the moment to execute at a high level when you're talking about competing i think that crosses to any industry whether you're a builder whether you're a banker if you're not focusing on the task at hand you're never doing it to the maximum ability and you might not Yeah, execute at a level that you're happy with. I think like you mentioned, like when we're on a wave surfing, if you're looking at the second turn before you've even done the first turn, it kind of ruins the wave. And I think there's a little bit in that for people out there that might not surf, but kind of whatever task we're doing, if we're not fully present during it, it kind of takes away from the experience for one, but it also takes away from the performance of what you're doing.
1: Yeah, totally agree. I mean, so we kind of rob ourselves of giving our full full potential to that moment. Mm. So, yeah, it definitely crosses over to many things. Yeah, all right. So, let's
0: go into your junior surf career. At what stage yeah. did you think, all right, surfing's for me? Because I know you're quite successful quite young. So, let's talk about that journey. Like, let's say high school yeah. era. What was school like for you and what was that initial surf competitive yeah. scene for, like you? <laughs> what was that initial competitive scene like for you?
1: Yeah, I guess Um, for me, I like the the pathways, like the regional titles and the state titles and the Australian titles, that's the sort of first real benchmark and pathway for surfing. And I went really good at regionals, New South Wales beaches titles. You know, I used to win them a lot, under 13s, under 15s, or under 16s, under 18s. And so I won all the regional titles and then I won three state titles straight in a row and then I won two Australian titles. So I kind of – that really set me up – in the pathway like that. And then I kind of like I had most people then went on to the junior series. You had like a really strong uh, billabong junior series, but I kind of didn't really sink my teeth into that too much. I did the odd one, but I didn't really do the junior series as much. I was traveling with Rip Curl doing the search movies and stuff. And um, yeah, so I kind of my surfing, I had a lot of competition really early on, won a lot of the state titles and Australian titles. And then I didn't do that much junior series as such. Um, I was doing the search movies with Rip Curl and traveling a lot and sort of making movies with them, which was incredible for my surfing too because I got mm. a lot of like time with, you know, some of the best guys, you know, collectively around the world and traveling to different spots and sort of having to work out breaks on the fly and, you know, I mean, I'll give you one example. Like I went on a boat trip for the search, you know, with Rip Curl and it was 28 days straight on a boat and we were kind of pioneering from the bottom of the Ments up to the top to Banda Aceh. And the idea was that mothership would go out the back sailing and I was on a little tender with the captain. I'd go and just find spots and surf and get chucked out. And is that a wave? Is that a wave? And, you know, on some swell there might be a wave. The next day there might not be. So we're kind of like just going uncharted just to like, you know, full grom life just in on the chinny for like six hours and we'd just radio back, come in and get us. So that in itself was good for me, you know, because I got to surf so many different breaks and work out boards and just without even knowing uh, I was getting – the surf university in a different way Mm. and uh, i think then i kind of jumped straight onto the wqs um, when i was 18 i was pretty keen to leave school like i remember the phil phil and anthony macker had left school and so did um tom Whitaker and a bunch of other guys that were sort of at the same level as i was and they they left in year 10 and started to do the qs and i was like dad i want to you know they're starting to like kick ass on the qe and and get out there and dad was just kind of like you know what son um because I was, I was saying to dad about schools like i don't know what algebra is going to do for me i don't know what i don't, I don't really know what this is going to do for me like i don't see myself doing something along that way like going to uni or being an academic so mm. i struggled a bit but dad was all about just completing something and he was really big on just finish what you're doing yeah. so i stayed to the end of year 12 and that was that was really good because i didn't do too many events or travel too much too early because I think there was that that kind of burnout kind of dad could foresee that a little yeah. so he just didn't hold me back we just kept me grounded finish school it'll still all be there when you get to get there you know so yeah. um that was a really good good foresight from my dad there and so I started the QS when I was 18 so wow. not not super young not not crazy young yeah, um, yeah. I, I
0: love that I, it was very i feel a lot of parallels my dad was always very finish school and so often we do see people jump straight out of in year 10 and go straight into their sporting career and then get that like you said that burnout sort of phase because like 15 is very young or 16 is very young to be putting all your eggs in one basket and not that you have to use the end of your schooling but like you said I think just the idea of completing something and seeing something through I mean you do 10 years like to do the extra two I mean, for me, it was very important. I think people who go into a trade is a really cool idea, like drop out and do a trade and be fully finished your trade by the time most of your mates are like first year of uni. I think that's a good idea. But for yeah. like us with the surfing, I think it's nice to finish something because like you said, it's still going to be there in two years, the surfing, and there's still a lot of surfing and career ahead of you once you finish the end of school. So we'll talk about that next journey for you finishing school i'm sure you're probably already getting paid all right and you're already doing these great trips yeah what was those next few years like on the wqs for you and what sort of things did you learn because i know from my experience traveling and just getting to see the world and getting to explore and learn new cultures was a great way for me to grow up and actually feel like i learned a lot like you said the university of surfing i like to call it like the university of life getting to travel the world is a really good way to for one get perspective but for two, just really learn who you are yourself and get put in uncomfortable situations. Let's talk about, all right, let's talk about those first few years on the QS. I'm sure you had some uncomfortable
1: situations. What can any come to mind? Yeah, I guess it's just, um, you know, having to adapt and, and learn on the fly as well. And, you know, traveling just teaches you so many things. And I guess the most, most valuable thing that it's given me for my whole life is just to like appreciate different cultures and people and how. Different people go about doing things, and I think it's it's been a really, really beneficial thing for me, um, seeing how other people live their lives, and mm. for like um, perspective and gratitude, and just how people because we're so we're so blessed and fortunate in Australia. It's good to see how other people do it, and I think that's really helped me and shaped me as a person. Um, but those first few years, it was just a lot of really good camaraderie, and it was like. Um, like uh connecting with with really close guys on the tour because so, they become like family for you that's you your traveling family on the road, so I was really fortunate to travel with like Parker and Mick through those through those years and um Phil macker so um I guess we learned a lot to sort of lean on each other and and support each other and to try to it really sort of enhanced our careers too because we wanted to beat each other, so it was like a really healthy rivalry and having to like you know all you do legs back then it's sort of more one off trips now, but then you have to do like you'd be on the road for two or three months, so it was like a really good good way to to sort of grow and and get friendships you know get the depth because you, th- you go through so many different things whether it be like airports and traveling to the highs and lows of competing and mm. living situations and then you know um you know being away from your from your family so um yeah it was it was a it was an incredible way to grow up. For sure like i with the going away too and like with the search before competing i was rip curl would have me just turn up to some place i hadn't been to and just kind of be like oh they'll pick you up at the airport and you know oh they've got like a spare kennel for their dog so you're going to be in there like just Derek heim was the rip curl guy then and he was pretty gnarly like that like they just send me on these missions and just kind of like you just have to think on your feet no like, data roaming on the phone no nah, no nah, that. like i'll give you one example like when i went to um we went to surf Rhode Island once. there's this, there's this right there? And then Curran was there, and Derek Heine was there, and like those guys bailed. And like Derek said, oh, you're sweet to take the hire car back. Like I'm 15, <laughs> I hadn't didn't even have my life, didn't even have my L's on my piece. I'm on the other side of the road, and it was like a Ford Escape, like a Explorer, a like pretty big SUV back then. Like, and I had to get the hire car back to Boston Airport on my own. <laughs> oh my god! Like. you know what I mean like like that we just go wow like that just wouldn't happen today and the duty of care wasn't quite there but it was really good because it just now traveling later on the on the tour Mm. normal hire cars knew that shit was a piece of cake like Mm -hmm. it was just framing the deep end you know it was it was kind of rad like and then when you can find the handbrake yeah exactly (laughs) you're now other side (laughs) of the road no license and just on my own like it wasn't even 16 yet and then like one other time we we arrived in South Africa and, and Derek kind of had this freaking – this is all in the search all around related right, right around the search I know we're, we're looping back a bit here but no, that was good. Um, Derek had this Mercedes like a sedan Mercedes that he bought and there was no mechanics down at J Bay so he he taken it up it ended up being up in Jo'burg. <laughs> So we were, I was going down to stay at his crazy place down at J Bay and surf like longer boards, kind of like North Shore movie, like I had to surf all these longer boards and then gradually work my way down he'd let me surf my short boards, mm. like from 9 down and he wouldn't let me surf shorties. No way. So anyway, that was the purpose of this trip and, you know, doing search stuff around Africa, different spots in Mozambique and across to um, Reunion Island. So anyway, yeah, I get to Joburg and Derek jumps in the actual hire car and he's oh, I, he jumps in the, the Merc to drive it down and then I have to jump in the hire car and just follow him, drive all the way to J-Bay like, through the night. And he's like, oh, <laughs> what I'm going to tell you, is, go slow under the overpass because there's, there's radars and there's cops that sit under the overpass. That's it. <laughs> I was just like, you know, same thing again, like 15, 16, oh, in this hire hey. car following DH down the freaking highway towards J-Bay. Oh, South Africa is sketchy too, yeah. eh? If they, like, supposedly people, like,
0: stop you in the middle of the road and then come over and just hold you up at gunpoint to take your car. And I can imagine back then, that would have been a while back in the 90s. It would it's have been just super nuts, sketchy. Know.
1: Yeah, so, like, I grew up pretty quick doing those worldly trips, you know. And, yeah, this it definitely... um. Yeah, I grew up pretty quick with that stuff. <laughs> yeah, it
0: shapes who you are. Yeah. Let's talk next stage. You qualify for the tour when you're 20 years old. It's quite young even in standards. I mean, there's quite a few young guys on the World Surf Tour now. But back then, there was a few more guys on tour. What was You spent six years on the tour, which is an amazing feat, and you had some great success. Give us some stories from on tour, something from the first couple of years that you remember that was – I mean, yeah. we talked a few pretty good stories last night, but yeah. maybe something that you found really enjoyable about the start of the tour and something that you found quite difficult when you were quite young getting on the tour.
1: Yeah, like I qualified um, when I was 20 and then the first year was 2001. And uh, that was a tricky year because it was pretty cutthroat because you had to be on the top 48, then you had to be in 28th position. It was pretty gnarly. It has got cut in half, you know, pretty much um that was the year that the twin towers bombed it was my first year on tour so i was I had a few events where i kind of got 17th and a ninth and i was sort of sitting around the cut line and then the the twin towers happened and a lot of the americans um refused to travel and you know understandably so yeah. like rod machado and the lopez brothers and Hob a bunch Goods. of guys from the us hobgoods just said no we're not traveling so the tour basically rather than 12 13 events only had like five or six so i was sitting at like 20 something and um, 20, like to the back end, like 25th, twenty six, And I I wasn't quite in, you know, I was like really close to being on the cut. And I had to, there was one event left at sunset. And I had to make like three heats. It wasn't like a given. It was pretty nuts. Back then it was the World Tour event was mm. at sunset. So, yeah, I remember having guys like Taylor Knox and Mark Banner in the heat too. Like really good forehand guys on there. Like real, real powerful, good guys at sunset. So it was really tough. Like the very first year, like it um i had to make through i think three or four heats and i made, ended up getting to the semis so like i i did really well i ended up qualifying but it was a lot of pressure that very first year and i think that helped me you know through the years later that you know when it was on the line i knew i could do it like i got the experience the very first time on tour mm. then the next year i kind of ended up around about the same still trying to find my feet like Ended up around 20-something, low 20s, a little bit better than the year before, but still sort of my second year and I had a few little bit inconsistent. And then my third year on tour, I had a a break for a year. I went amazing. Like I made the final at Tahiti and I dislocated my shoulder, um, was the final. And then um, that was kind of heartbreaking because I was, you know, had beaten Andy on the way in the quarters and beaten Damo Hopgood and I'm sitting in the final about to surf against CJ, my very first wave of the final in Chopu, I dissipate my shoulder. Like I get spat out of the barrel but ragdolled and I oh. dislocate my shoulder coming out. So like I didn't get to surf that event and then I had to skip Fiji which is the next one and I oh. sort of figured with that momentum and how like just making the final, I feel like Fiji would have been mental, really good flow into the next one. So I had to sit out for Fiji but then I did all the rehab and got my shoulder back really good and I came back to J-Bay and um, I made the final again. And it was a sick event because like I'd, I'd beaten Parker along the way and the um, only time I beat Slater was there in the quarters. And that was oh, a, yeah. that was right when he was like the man. I mean, he's always Prada. the man there, but he was right with like one of the most there. And he's wearing those white wetties. I don't know if you remember, he's wearing right. those white wetsuits. And he was pretty much untouchable at J-Bay through then. And yeah. I ended up beating him in the quarters. Um, and then I had Sonny in the semis. <sighs> beat Sonny. And I'm in the final with Andy and freaking, I kind of like, I peaked, I got my best waves, and did my best surfing, I think in the quarters and the semis in the, the, the final, you know, sometimes it's a bit of yeah. a fizz, it just doesn't come together and the waves mm-hmm. weren't that good and Andy surfed a lot better than me and I think he needed a 10 to beat me and he got a 10. On the last He got a 10, wave. no, I like threw it, like, but you're not the very last wave or anything, but he got a 10 huh. and just, yeah, pretty much schooled me. Um, but the funnest part was then, well, like, Sharon, the lady from Billabong, used to have the after party after the place yeah, up right up on, on the head there. there and got to the after party and, um. They'd made two drinks named after me and Andy, like two cocktails, and that's all you could get it was the hog or the or the AI, or whatever, and it's sort of like a bit of a mystery what was in there. <laughs> and, um, yeah, everyone was just partying, having a really good time, and, and then the, the party came back to our place or Derek's place, and um, Derek used to have this nut slide. He's like real eccentric kind of guy, and he built this slide from the third, fourth level that come down through the house and shot out <laughs> through the land room floor out onto the deck. <laughs> And you'd have to like suspend off like a monkey bar and like go vert and then just let go and you'd shoot down this fucking shoot out out into the lounge room, (laughs) this conversation pit was just was whacked out. Um, So we're all off our heads back there, like celebrating the week that had been, and and then um like the sun's coming up, you know, it's kind of wow, it's the next morning, and so like wow, people starting to like go to bed and go back to their places and stuff, and I just remember Sonny had drove over to our place and um. He had his hire car in the driveway and he'd lost his keys. Like, he couldn't find the keys anywhere. And I was just like, I'm thinking I have to go back to Port Elizabeth or find the next Avis or try and get a key. Mm -hmm. And he just didn't say anything. He just pulls his shirt off, wraps it around his knuckles and just, bang, just punches the window in and gets in and just, I don't know, I guess the keys are locked in the car. Oh, no. (laughs) So he just... Just punched the window in and just got in the car and drove off. I just remember the deafening, like, early in the morning, just hearing the glass go, I was like, Whoa. it was, like, real sobering. And just woke us up like, fuck, that's true Hawaiian, true sunny. Just this yeah. punch a window in and that's how we do it. It was just like, wow, you know? So it's just. What a weapon. It's pretty nuts.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, there's just, I know there's so many stories. We could just sit here all day yeah, and talk about stories. Yeah. What was a moment on tour that. Because I know you've, like you've just said, you've obviously had some loose and fun times and there was a period maybe towards the end of your career that maybe got a little bit, I mean, let's not say too loose. I'm sure you had a hell of a time. What was the last couple of years like on tour for you? Because I know there was, let's call it problems with alcohol and getting quite loose towards the end of your career because that'll take us into the next part yeah. of your journey which you said you're happy to talk about because yeah. I think a lot of people get a lot out of the next chapter. What was that last year or two like on tour where you, maybe you feel like you started to lose a bit of control around
1: performance and we're focusing on maybe some wrong areas. Yeah. I think it probably be important to put a little bit of context around it, like go back a tad just to, yeah. so that for the listeners, like, cause I'd, I'd finished up at seventh in the world in 2004. So like in the top 10, like five year contract, rip curl and really good money incentives, like crazy. Then the very next year I backed that up with an eighth position. So, you know, to consolidate, second top year in in the top Mm. 10 was was pretty crazy you know so i would had the two so so years and then two years in the top 10 then the very next year i wasn't even on tour anymore so it was kind of like a really the the carpet kind of really pulled out from under my feet so it was kind of like i knew that you know how i was going about things um i'd like to change a few things but it was less like i'd had my second year in the top 10 and kind of was a little bit in denial of like what was really going on and you know, it was the Foster's World Tour then. It was like a lot of partying and every every week's to town was like that week's to Time. shine. And, and, you know, you're travelling with pretty famous guys and everybody wanted to party with them and, you know, the guys in the contest. And so it was kind of like a, a non-stop party. And I think for your early 20s, you can get away with it. But when I started kind of, you know, I was just doing things. My timing would suck, you know. It's kind of like other guys could sort of... Um, were better at knowing when, you know, just better with their timing. And I was kind of finding like on the next day then I was traveling for the airports and drinking again through the corners clubs and then turning up not feeling that good, you know, to the next event. And um it was like in two thousand and six, um, I went to Mundaka and it's like this little window of swell it's got to get through. And I thought the ways, you know, everyone was saying it was going to be flat and off for a couple of days anyway so we are partying or whatever and wait for the comp to start and having a good time in we darker in Spain and uh the next day this little swell had come up and I was in like the third heat of the morning whatever and I wasn't feeling that good you know because I'd we'd been partying through the week and I just wasn't firing on all cylinders and so I lost that heat and it was after that heat that I kind of came in and thought you know that's this is really affecting my performance and um you know, I, I really knew within myself that had I been a bit sharper, I, my performance would have been better and I lost by, you know, 0. 0.5 or something. Mm. And so that was really at that moment, it was 2006, um, halfway through the year at Mundaka when, you know, my my choices had led to a subpar performance and more so that I'd promised myself that I wouldn't keep doing it but I kept finding myself doing what I said I wasn't going to do mm. and making sort of choices that weren't serving me and, things that I wasn't proud of kept happening so it was really starting to affect me because I used to be able to shake it off but I kept lying to myself I wasn't being honest with myself and that's what really started to affect me it started to come out in in other ways There was a bit of shame around some things and knowing that I wasn't doing the right thing and kind of not not having a handle and not being able to control things anymore because it kind of had control of me and it wasn't something that I could handle anymore I was obviously in pretty deep and um it wasn't something that I could just uh that I felt like I had control of. So um, then that made the back half of the year a lot harder. You know, the results were kind of, there's a lot more pressure then and then I had to, I got to Pipeline and I had to like make the final or something and uh, I had a really good performance but I didn't make the final and so I fell off the tour in 2006 in the last year and then so 2007, uh, it was like the Prime Series and stuff so you could, you know, that was my pathway to get back on the tour and I won Scotland Prime. But the problem was I won the event, but I was still doing what I was doing. I was kind of, you know, partying and having a good time. And, you know, so I didn't really get the wake-up call that I needed. Um, even though I, I won I won a prime, I just needed one more result for that year. I didn't get that result, so I didn't get back on the tour. So, my Root Curl contract was, like, it was real, real incentive-based. Like, the better you did, the more money you got. But it was sort of based on me being on the tour. Yeah. So, after having my couple of years in the top ten, I didn't really look at the fine print to think, well, I'm not going to be on tour anymore so it was just wasn't in my headspace you speak to me about being yeah, the top yeah. 10 then all of a sudden not on tour I was like it's a pretty quick quick fall you know so I'd won Scotland um, having a good time I mean I, I was super focused and you know uh, up early and get to the events early in my equipment like it wasn't all sort of messy yeah. but it was just still I was still kind of doing the same thing so so thought of like, oh, I'll just get back on the tour it'll be sweet I've had a year off I'll fall off, I'll get back on yeah. But the next year, I still didn't get back on. And then got to the end of my Rip Curl contract, 2010. And, um, you know, it, it didn't renew and I wasn't on the tour anymore. So I'd gone from being top ten in the world um, with, you know, five-figure contract to, all, you know, house in the lake at Narrabeen to not on tour anymore and not getting paid to surf. Um, my dad had passed away in 2009. Um, so it was just like a, you know, it was like starting again. So that's when I went and sort of seeked help for, for you know, try to change my life.
0: Yeah. How, how is that? What sort of experience did you have and what sort of feelings do you think you were kind of going into that? Cause I know there is a lot of people out there who feel the same way, like you were describing before a bit of shame and a bit of denial around it. Like it's very like continuing to lie to yourself, you know, you're doing something wrong and then just continuing to do it, continuing to not break the pattern how did you break that pattern? What was that step for you where you put your hand up and asked for help?
1: Yeah, I guess it was just being brutally honest with myself. There was there's no two ways about it. Just had to in complete surrender, you know, not kind of hang on to the white tower a little bit, like just being open to full complete surrender that to do whatever it takes, you know, um, and to to be open to that maybe somebody else knew knew better than me because it's you know it's a really strong asset and something that's really served me in my life to back myself and to have the courage and determination but that same pig-headed kind of stubborn mentality can be counterproductive when you're trying to make change and not not listening so i really just had to do what i was told and you know because my best thinking got me to where i was you know I, rather than playing the blame game oh they've done this then i oh, didn't give me the score rip kill dropped me blah blah like mm. victim blame game it was like well okay nathan what's what's your part to play in this how can you own what's your responsibility look at what you've been doing to contribute to your position and where you're at and when I got really honest with myself it was through what I was had been doing and, and the choices I was making led to that so I had to kind of stop blaming others and I had to own my shit and take responsibility and kind of take it head on and just You know, it wasn't about sort of fighting or being, oh, I've got to get this. You know, it was actually the opposite. It was like surrender, let go and just trust in the process. And, you know, for me, that was a long-term residential rehabilitation place. Um, I went to a couple places. Um, It's a long long story, but there's a few little chapters. Like in 2007, I went to a place for 28 days and you know, I stayed sober and clean uh, for like a year or so, and then I sort of went back to thought I could just control drink and mm. kind of be okay, and then my dad passed away in 2009, and I, I knew that for him, you know, he'd be really proud of me if I was looking after myself and doing the right thing and to see me fit and healthy, so that kind of gave me the inspiration for about 15 months. I remember I stayed sober and clean and got really fit, and then I started drinking again, and then it just led to other choices. Then, before I knew it, I was back where I was. Went out, did some more research, and nothing had changed for me. The same shit was happening. And so, then in 2010, I just went. I got. St- I was just on the bones of my ass, and life wasn't going the way I wanted it to. And I, that was when I did complete surrender and just went "Okay, I'm going to do whatever it takes." And that was, you know, to go to a, a longer term rehabilitation place out um, the back of the the hinterland in Queensland. And I stayed there for a, a year and wow. it was it was massive, you know. The program was nine months and then I stayed for an extra three months to sort of help the community and the newcomers coming through and sort of transition back into not life outside but just to sort of, you know, stay stay with the support, and stay connected so you're not sort of back out, left to your own devices and maybe go back to your old ways. So um, it was pretty rad existence because I went from being a pro surfer to travelling the world, having all this freedom, getting paid to surf to... Being in a controlled environment um not surfing um you know the, the ocean is so healing i take so many problems to the ocean but just in the early stages it was important to kind of get um my mental state better and um get the physical compulsion away from having to change how i was feeling to put something in my body you know yeah. i had a feeling i had to put something in my body to change it You know, i wasn't able to sit my own skin for long enough to just ride something out whether you know i just had to change how i was feeling and um, so yeah, gradually over time, you know, it's a, th- it's a three headed thing, like a spiritual, physical, mental thing, alcoholism and, and drugs. So I was kind of had to, cause I could get really fit and think, Oh, I've got this, but I hadn't dealt with what was going on in in between my, my ears and my head and what I was thinking about and emotions and, mm. and what was really going on for me. So I was sort of taking care of one thing, but not really attacking it from all angles. So, um, yeah, it was just about getting some routine and going through a twelve-step program, and um but yeah, and giving back too, because I'd been pretty, really selfish, you know. W- when you, when you're in active addiction, it's just all about you, and when that next whatever it is you're into is coming, and without even knowing it, you're just all premeditated. So there's no space for no one else, no room mm-hmm. for anything else in your life. It just everything revolves around what you're focused on. And, um, so there's a lot that, um, diminishes and, and, uh, gets, you know, very little focus and attention, you know, when you're focused on that. So I, um, you know, I started giving back, like there was a few duties within the program that you could do. Like, you know, you start out doing everyone's washing. It's just like, what the hell? Like get stripping beds, you know, stripping the sheets off and then doing the washing, the community washing. There's like 25 guests there and you had to do their washing. That's your first job. Hmm. you know the next one might be um you know in the office helping put taking all the bins out whatever it is Just real simple stuff where you're just getting off yourself doing something for someone else and Mm -hmm. you start to feel good you slowly get your self-esteem back start doing something you know for someone else and start to contribute in a very small way within the community you know um so it was just yeah pretty amazing experience and then i ended up driving the buses because we go to daily meetings and different community sort of allied health appointments so I drive the high ACE bus to the to the appointments because I, I was the only one that somehow still had a license. You're the one who got the training when you were 15. In yeah, the, exactly. In yeah, <laughs> yeah look, I got this. So it was kind of nice to drive through the hills of the hinterland and and you know helping people get to their appointments um, that they need to get to. People trying to get their life back on track, you know, because a lot of people are sent there on court orders or it's either that or jail, or you know, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Um, and then there was like a, a a meeting room in there, where we would have daily community meetings, and up on the wall was like a bunch of stars. It looked really nice, but that was actually the people who had left the program and passed away. So like it was it was really serious. And, yeah. um, but you know it was it was no frills, but it was it was good recovery, and it was there if you wanted to really put the work in, it wasn't a fancy place. It was, it was rough you know, you had to share a room with someone, a tiny little box, and it wasn't flash but it was what I needed and it changed my life. It's the best thing I've ever done because I got my life back on track. That was my next question.
0: Do you think it was super beneficial? And obviously it was. And speaking to Tommy Carroll, who I know you're close with as well, who was a previous guest on Good Humans Podcast, anyone who's listening, head back and have a listen to his because similar but obviously in his own way journey that just having that courage to stand up and ask for help and it must be so hard. And I know the experience for him sounds very similar in the fact that being this top level, well-known, highly paid, great life kind of person to take that step back and to take a bit of accountability and to put your hand up through like the fear that must come with it and shame that must come with it is such a powerful thing. And I think it's going to help a lot of people out there listening who might have a bit of a problem, but how did you find that space to be honest with yourself because I know people listening will be like, oh, maybe that's what I need help, but maybe I don't. What was
1: that journey into f- being honest with yourself? I guess it's just having the, the brutal honesty with yourself and just, you know, having maybe one or two people in your corner that you can be honest with always helped, you know, helped me and um, just not hold on to the white flag anymore and just get into a spot where you just, you know, you, you really, really want the change. But I found, you know, living in Australia... The helps there like mm. all you need to do is put your hand up like we are so blessed like you know we're talking free programs like i went to rehab for a year and i, I left with a little bit of pocket money because i was putting some aside when i was in there it was like i got all the help i need i got my teeth fixed i got freaking all the meals um got my life back on track like all for free in australia so you know it was actually i mean I guess the people in the US, it's unless you've got private health, you can't go do those things. So, you know, if you want help in Australia, it's you really put your hand up and ask for help. It's all you really need to do, and then it's it all starts to fall into place, you know. So,
0: can you maybe explain that process? Because I know people will be listening, thinking, uh, maybe it is similar now, maybe it's different now." But when you went through that process, because I feel like there is people, yeah, that would be scared of maybe the costs that would come with it, the taking the time off work. But it's obviously so important to get your mind and your health in order before you can sort of take that next step in life or you kind of get stuck in this moment in your life and it just keeps repeating it keeps repeating it's like life's about the journey and moving forward and taking on the present moment as the future goes on rather than being stuck in that stagnant um moment in our life how did that what was the process for you maybe just quickly touch on yeah was it seeing a gp was it
1: yeah yeah there's a pathway and it's it's a referral from a gp going to get honest with with your doctor or your gp and saying look i've got something going on in my life whether it be alcohol or substance abuse that I, I need to hand with and then there's a referral and then that goes on to um a rehabilitation place and then there's like an intake process an assessment they'll have an assessment to see where you're at and how they can best support you mm-hmm. and then you know you kind of go from there um you've been in a program and and whether it be a 12-step program or what they've got on offer at different different facilities, depending on what, you know, what you need help with, mm. um, super straightforward. Was there a
0: specific sp- skill or technique or something that you took away from the experience that you found extremely beneficial that you might think that people listening to this podcast might find beneficial?
1: Yeah, I guess, um, again, it taught me to not judge any, anyone by a cover and everyone's got a story and to have compassion for people and maybe not be too quick to kind of point the finger or be like oh what's he doing they're doing because everyone does have a story and we don't know what conditioning of people have come through so just to sort of maybe pause for a sec before we get to you know have ideas around other people's situations Mm. um yeah that was that was a big big one for me and i guess anyone listening you know there's a lot of excuses or denial around oh i can't go take time out because my business is going to suffer or i can't oh, because I'll lose my marriage or what about the kids or oh, I can't because I'll miss a few events surfing. Like, that was a bit of a thing for me. I was like, oh, how how can I get back from that? But really, once you get yourself right, the ripple effect out, everyone benefits even without you knowing and everything that you put your hand to gets better. Your business gets better. Your relationships get better. If you're doing sport, your sports gets better. Everything you do, better connections with people, You have real conversations, like everything in life gets better so the ripple effect actually get yourself right and then everything from there just just flows so it's kind of like if you can get yourself in order then then you're a chance you know so don't be afraid of um taking some time out and just be open and sort of just do whatever it takes because everyone around you and anything you what you want to do will become possible It was like excuse me that's probably the one biggest thing I had to accept was the acceptance around, okay, I can't do this. Talk about like drink, party, it doesn't work for me. It's not it's like I'm allergic to it. I can't do that. It doesn't work for me, but I can do absolutely everything else. Mm. So if I don't do that, I'm a chance at anything I want to put my hand to. Anything is possible for me, no matter what it is. But if I keep doing this, everything else suffers. Closes so that's we know. the acceptance around that and. You know, another big thing for me too, just sort of chatting to you now, it's come up around what I took from it and the skill was um, changing my mindset around, okay, well, I can keep doing what I'm doing if I want because nobody, I don't like being told what to do, right? And I don't know if anybody really does. So <coughs> rather than saying, oh, I can't drink or I can't drug, <coughs> excuse me, I can but I know where it takes me. So shift it. You know, flip it on its head and go. Well, okay, okay, I can, I can have this drink or this drug or whatever. And but then being honest with where it takes me, then it sort of feels like I'm choosing and it's my decision. Mm. But I know where it takes me, so I'm owning it. It's in my power. It's not somebody telling me what to do. Yeah. And then it, it kind of took the power away from, you know, the allure or the the fantasy that that's what I needed in my life. You know, it's kind of like the Corona ad where it opens up on the beach and it's all nice. Like, oh, from where you'd rather be, and it's. Now, there's a fire going and there's a real idyllic setting, but they don't show like three in the morning where it ends up taking me. You mm. know, and if I'm honest with myself, that's where it leads to. Uh, so it was just about being honest to go, well, okay, I can do that if I want, but I know where it takes me. Yeah. So it's my choice. My, I mean, standing in my power now, you know. Yeah. How and that really long? helped me, like the acceptance and the, yeah, doing what's best for yourself.
0: Yeah, it's really powerful. And I think it wow. comes back to the idea that, as humans we get told that like pleasure is going to bring happiness but the more work I do in this area and the more I talk to people like yourself the more I realize that peace brings happiness we're looking for pleasure but once you get to it it's that momentary happiness and then you're waiting for the next bit of happiness with pleasure whereas with peace you can sit in peace and you can be still and enjoy the moment and it can prolong a lot more and I think seeing it with you now obviously being sober and the life you've lived the last five to 10 years, it's been really special watching because there's obviously, there was a fork in the road for you there and you took what seems like the great fork and the happiness you're in now and we'll move on to this last little part of your chapter now with the beautiful little girl now and how much that means to you and what the last five-year period of your life has been like. Mm. So yeah, what's the journeys after coming out of rehab, refocusing, reshifting what life means to you? What was that next step for you?
1: Yeah, well, I I dove into, you know, f- uh, being a family man. I, I ended up I got married and you know I had a gorgeous little little baby girl, Summer, and I really found my identity in you know being married and being a, being a father. And things didn't work out for my daughter's mum and I, and um that was another sort of hard time where I sort of went, okay, because I sort of based myself. I went from being a pro surfer to sort of not being a surfer, and I had to do some work around my identity then and getting through the the, the the drug and alcohol stuff and then I got married and then it sort of things didn't work out there so I was kind of like back to myself and it took some more, mm. you know, a year or two of really a lot of inner work to sort of work out who I was because I, I based my identity on being a, a husband and a family man and it was sort of really nice, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, you're always left with you. You can do a geographical and you can you can run but, you know, you're always left with you so it's about, you know, doing the inner work and just staying staying true to yourself and and knowing knowing who you are, getting a really good sense of of who you are and what you're about and I feel that a lot more today. It's taken a couple of years like I've been divorced um two thousand eighteen so three or four years now and it's still it's not totally gone, but you know I'm starting to feel a bit better in my own skin and sort of um know who Nathan is outside of you know what I've got or status or anything like that you know it takes some getting used to.
0: Yeah, I like the way that you touch on that and the importance of being true to yourself and understanding your values. It's something I spoke about on Tuesday, which when I dropped a podcast called The 1% Pod, which everyone listening to this generally knows about. But it, I talked about putting your purpose based around the way you live in your values and your self-worth on your values rather than on your achievements and the goals that you set yourself. And it sounds like it's taken plenty of time and a lot of self-work, but I love the way that you brought up that. You can do the geographical and move away and think that's going to change you, but you're always stuck with you. And until you come to peace and know who you are and can take back control, like you said, with the alcohol, you can always still have a drink, but it's you in yourself once you can be honest with yourself and know like, oh, well, I can, but I'm not going to. And that's when you take back control. And something that I've spoken to with a good friend of mine, Harry Bink, he likes to use uh, a little saying, I don't have to do anything, I get to do it. So when you have to do something that you're not really a fan of, which I mean, to you probably not drinking was something you're like, oh, spewing." but it's like, I don't have to, I get to not drink. So like just shifting the mindset and the way that we look at different situations and the way that we see the world is so, so powerful. And yeah, I love the way that you talked about sort of being true to yourself and finding your values. Let's talk about where we're at now. We've kind of been having a good old chat about the journey. We could chat all day about all the stories we did last night. We spoke for hours about all your great stories, but we wanted to focus more so on that journey and the things you've learned because that's what this podcast is all about, the journey and the things that we learn more so on our down days because I think people get so inspired and motivated by hearing stories of people that are authentic and they go you know what this guy from the outside who looks like he's had this perfect life of pro surfer has gone through some struggles has battled some demons but come out the other side and that's why i think you're such a inspiration to so many people where are you at now we're down here at these surf comps. we've been going through unfortunately you lost in the event yesterday but how cool is it for you to be back competing at 42 years old bringing it back against the young guys but then maybe coming into these events with that little bit different mindset
1: yeah, it's 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 been um been an interesting little journey. i uh, super inspired um by Kelly's recent you know performances and he's 50 and I'm 42 and I um I don't know I guess when I'm doing something I do it I'm really present and I'm I'm full f- full throttle, you know. So I've I've really got into my fitness and got super fit and felt like I was surfing really good, so I just wanted to come and try and put my hand to the QS they have changed it, you know, to a regional regional setup, so it's just this is about kind of a celebration of where I'm at in my life and as an opportunity to, um, you know, put the pieces of the puzzle together and I still really love competing and it gives me a drive and a focus. Um, I still really love it. So it's been really nice to be able to, you know, sort of lead up something, have a few goals and, you know, it's sort of like five or six weeks of competing. So it's not like a, a total sort of distraction of your life. You can sort of, you know, it's you can just put your toe in the water and see how things pan out.
0: Yeah. What about, this is something I want to touch on because you talked about it briefly in your stint at rehab, the importance of giving back and service. How special is that for you? I know you do a bit of surf coaching and what you're into now is about giving back and sharing that knowledge and love for the ocean with others. Talk to me a little bit about what's next moving forward with sharing your love for the ocean with other people and how I guess people can find getting contact with you with your surf coaching and stuff like that.
1: I guess I'm just trying to look at it on a daily and just go, how can I kind of give some of my experience and some knowledge, whether it's whatever it might be, might be just helping someone at the beach locally or helping them sort of, you know, facilitate something they don't understand or just how can I be of service just here today, like not too grand or not too massive, just kind of what's right in front of me. Is it Mm. just sort of, so it could just be something really simple and I just find that's been helping me um, sort of get off myself and it just helps me run a little bit better be of whatever service that might be and it doesn't happen all the time but I find I always run better when, I've, when I'm running from that space and it starts from early in the morning you know if I check in and connect and sort of hand the day over you know to higher power whatever you believe in um, if I start my day like that it, it's a very different day the way my day is shaped out you know so it's kind of like I'm just focusing right now on some rituals I know that you know, if I hit one or two rituals through the day, it, it makes me sort of feel connected and, and myself. And I know that's, that's my recipe. And then it's kind of about, okay, yeah, how can I help someone else? You know, not just make it all about me. And then, um, you know, it kind of, it turns out that I've got actually a fair bit to offer when I really come from that space. You sort of, you know, don't count yourself out. you someone's, you know, we've each got our own experiences and so much value in, in what we've been through. And, um, You know, if it take time to just connect and sort of be open, um, you know, we've all got a lot to offer. Yeah. Because we've all walked in different different shoes and got different experiences. We all had different upbringings and different influences, and so yeah, it's kind of like stripping it back a little bit, keeping it pretty simple. Um, Sort of feel like um, sometimes at these events or just this this week, sort of feel like a little bit of the. So the grandfather of some of the groms like just being back where they were and being stoked to see the event come to town and just mm. real simple stuff and just you know it doesn't need to be grand but just don't underestimate how what that can do to set up someone's you know life and career yeah and
0: yeah. it's something I've noticed and I've been really conscious watching you hanging around this week is no matter who it is whoever walks past you'll always say hey how you going how's your day and get to know the person, that's something that I think is so important and so special and something that I've been inspired by watching you this week. And I think that comes back to the way that you were just talking about. It doesn't have to be grand. You don't have to go and do something massive for someone. A simple conversation, a simple smile when somebody walks past or just showing a bit of interest in somebody's life, you never know the sort of impact that can have. And I think whether it's conscious or unconscious because of the person you are and the work you've done now, I think it really comes off from me looking from the outside is something that you'd probably don't realize the impact that ha- that, that that has on someone. And like you said, especially being one of the older guys, talking to the younger guys, being open to share some knowledge. I think, yeah, you should be really proud of that because I know it really helps me just spending some time with you this week. has been nice to see the way you function and understand the way your mind works and share some epic stories that we couldn't quite share on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how it goes, hey. <laughs> but it to we, we, you gotta, bus. you gotta love that. But Last question, I finished this podcast with everyone. What does being a good human mean to Nathan Hedge?
1: It means just being true to myself, you know, trying to um, live by my morals and values and treating people how I'd want to be treated. Um, yeah, it's been, been a good father to my daughter and, uh, yeah, just, just staying committed and, and uh, yeah, I guess true to yourself true to Nathan yeah I yeah. love that
0: well thanks so much for having a chat we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks it's really nice to sit down have a bit of a chat pick your brain talk about that story it's really inspiring for me and so special to have somebody who's so honest about that journey in their life that might carry a bit of shame like going to rehab and I know speaking to Tommy about it as well can be quite liberating as well knowing yeah. that the impact that people listening to this will have and the permission it'll give some people is, yeah, it's amazing. And the courage that you've shown through that part of your life and also to be able to continue to share it is, yeah, it's really special. So thanks so much for sitting down and having a chat on Good Humans Podcast. Stoke, keeps, Thanks so much, mate. Too easy. See you all soon. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?